ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Selena Green with you for The Country Hour today. Hopefully the weather's playing nice where you are. Give me an update on what it's like where you are today. Is it hot? Any storm activity? Any rain? I'm broadcasting to you from Mount Gambier in the southeast. Just had a sprinkle of fat raindrops here a moment ago, but it's still very warm. Uh, yeah, let me know what's up in your patch. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Or send me a text on 0467-922-891. In just a moment, you'll get some more detail on a half a million dollar investment from our state government into the plant protein industry and an even greater investment in improving how Australia detects and deals with threats to the grain industry. That's also to come. And just a reminder that we do have total fire bans in place today in a number of districts, the Flinders, Mid-North, Mount Lofty Ranges, Riverland, Murraylands, and both the Upper and Lower Southeast today, where the fire danger rating of all those districts is extreme. So take care. The state government has announced a half a million dollar funding contribution to a South Australian-based company developing plant protein products. The money will go to Integra Foods, which makes protein, starches and flowers from Australian-grown fibre beans, and it will go towards its plant protein export market development project. Nick Champion is the Minister for Trade and Investment. He joins me now. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. So this is a significant investment uh, from the state, half a million dollars. Why is this particular project something that the the government wants to invest in? Well, look, South Australia uh, really does have a booming uh, pulse legume export industry and it's up 58% over the last year. And so uh, this is a very important project, $500,000 to, you know, help uh, Integra Foods, which is based in Dublin, really look into research, development and export uh, fibre bean plant protein uh, products. So, you know, it's an exciting project and a value-add uh, for the South Australian, uh, you know, pulses industry. As far as growing that plant protein industry here in South Australia, what flow-on do you see that having it as far as benefits for the, uh, for the growing industry, for growers to have? Well, look, we've got a pretty vibrant... Um, you know, export industry. India has really sort of helped that, um, I think. So, you know, farmers are already getting, you know, sort of good prices and, and having some good export outcomes in this area. But this just adds to, I guess, the resilience of the sector. The more places you've got for your product to go, uh, the more resilient your export market is. And so this just opens up a source of... Um, you know, for fibre beans, um, basically uh, protein, starches and flowers, which are made from fibre beans uh, as a result of a process called dry fractionation. So it just adds, uh, you know, another another arrow to our, our bow, our export bow, um, uh, which of course helps prices in the longer term. Yeah. Is the government quite interested in further developing the plant protein industry in the state? I know previously there was some funding set aside for those three plant protein factories which uh, were to be built here in South Australia. The federal government obviously since uh, withdrawn their funding for that project. Is it still very much a, uh, an industry in development? Well, look, I think um, prices have come off uh, somewhat too for, for plant protein. You know, the, the 
there's often a lot of enthusiasm about these things and then uh, that goes into abeyance. Um, and I think we'll, we'll have a sort of more realistic uh, view of the plant protein industry. I don't think it's a core business, uh, you know, for our agricultural exports. Uh, that will always be, you know, the export of, of these valuable commodities. But this just, you know, Integra Foods, uh, I think, are, uh, you know, really operating a model which is mainly about their commercial model and about about uh, their commercial business. Uh, we're just helping out here uh, them develop a new product, and that new product uh, does, uh, you know, as I said before, helps just uh, diversify and deepen our export markets. Minister, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Elena. Nick Champion there, Minister for Trade and Investment here in South Australia. Stick around to hear from Integra Foods uh, later on in the program and uh, you'll hear from them about how they'll be investing this money. It's nine minutes past 12. Well, pests and diseases have the potential to cost the Australian grains industry millions of dollars in losses each year. So the industry is determined to get better at diagnosing, tracing and dealing with those risks. The Grains Research and Development Corporation, the GRDC, this week announced an almost $43 million investment in a national biosecurity project, which includes boots on the ground. John Woods is the chair of the GRDC. Welcome to the country, Aaron. Good afternoon. Afternoon. So $42.7 million, I understand it is, six years. Run us through what you're going to spend it on. Look, this is a significant uplift um, to invest this type of money right across Australia, uh, to put in $42 million, um, 50% of which is uh, GRDC, and the other 50% are substantively the states that are uh, operating with uh, regards to the grains industry. So you've got the West... Uh, South Australia, Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland are all contributing to this initiative and this biosecurity uplift. Uh, and what it really means is we're ensuring that the grains industry is uh, well prepared uh, for exotic pests and diseases and ensuring that we're well armed. So we're really doing a boost to diagnostics and surveillance is the key to this initiative. So the main priority here will be about improving the detection, getting on to those pests and diseases more quickly? Absolutely. And in doing so, part of this uplift is actually people, technicians and technology. So uh, we're actually employing 20 new staff, technicians. In fact, they're actually being employed as we speak. Uh, It's taken us just over two years to negotiate and develop up this initiative with state agencies. Uh, And those 20 specialist technicians on biosecurity are coming online as we speak. Um, so a lot of those people will be charged with the responsibility of ensuring that we've got the diagnostics capacity and also the surveillance as close to farm between our farms and the port zones to ensure that if there's an incursion of an exotic pest or disease, we can catch it as early as possible, get the diagnostic done so we know exactly what it is and then have the protocols to deal with it, whether it's an eradication or a management response. We need to make sure we've got the protocols to deal with that. Because is that one of the areas where there is a bit of a delay and, and opportunity for these pests and diseases to, to jump? Is is that delay in getting that diagnostic done you know, a bit further afield from in the field itself? Yeah, and obviously we, wouldn't, uh, we would not invest unless we saw a gap. And given that the grain industry is now the largest industry in Australia in agriculture, uh, we need to be well prepared. And to your point, you're absolutely right. Uh, we have 54 identified high-priority exotic pests and diseases that are regarded as very high risk to the grains industry if they were to get here. We currently only have around 10% of those have 
very clear diagnostics uh, protocols and response protocols against those. So we need to do that and do that quick smart. So those diagnostic protocols essentially is uh, we've diag- well, a, a process of diagnosing a particular disease or, or pest and then having a plan of how to actually deal with it. So there are pests and diseases that are, as you say, high risk where that, where that doesn't yet exist? Uh, yes, that's exactly right. And look, we know from uh, very conservative figures that just the most basic incursion uh, into the Australian grains industry it would cost circa $100 million uh, as an impact in that industry very early in the phase that it might come into Australia. So that means preparedness is key, not only to stop it, but also minimise the cost of the industry. We don't want things coming into Australia and becoming endemic. And sadly, in recent times, in the last few years, we've discovered fall armyworm, particularly in the north of Australia, but it's now coming down the east coast and as as far down as the Liverpool Plains. Uh, And that's a pest that we should have avoided having coming into Australia um, and it took, uh, you know, too long to actually make a decision about whether we could eradicate that or have a crack at eradicating it. As you say, all the states, or you've got a number of states who have come on board for this uh, project. Your specialists, will they be based around the country? Yes, they'll be spread uh, pretty much evenly around the country. As I say, all those state governments uh, are investing with us And I think part of the strength of this investment is that it's been a very collaborative uh, investment. When we developed it up, we consulted with the states, we identified the pinch points and where the gaps were, particularly bespoke to grains. Uh, And to invest against this with $42 million over six years with them to build capacity, we also know as a grain industry that we're effectively doing an uplift for the plant industries when it comes to biosecurity around Australia. But look, we're mature enough to know that what is good for us may be good for others, and we're, we're very happy to support that investment right across uh, the areas that we are largely farming, uh, and we are all going to be beneficiaries as a planned industries to have this uplift. And to think that it's on a six-year horizon uh, gives us time to build and preserve that capacity. We need to make sure we've got the people and the technology deployed uh, on an ongoing basis. John Woods, thanks for joining us on the program today. Pleasure. John Woods, he is the chair of the Grains Research and Development Corporation. You're with Selena Green. It's 15 minutes past 12. Well, speaking of threats to crops, and wheat stem rust has been a threat to crops in Australia for well over a century, and outbreaks have cost the industry billions of dollars. Containing and eradicating wheat stem rust is one thing, but new research into gene screening technology could be used to conduct better surveillance of diseases such as stem rust and in the long term boost the immunity and resilience of wheat crops. Dr Peter Dodds is the Chief Research Scientist at the CSIRO. He says the research will be used to produce surveillance tools for farmers to give them a faster heads up on what is threatening crops and how they should respond. So the the work has been done on wheat stem rust, which is one of the major diseases of, of wheat. But it's also a a technique that we can actually apply to other diseases as well. So we're we're looking at a number of other rust diseases of wheat, but also diseases of other crop plants too. What we've been doing is trying to find the genetic changes in pathogens of wheat that allow them to overcome immunity in the host. So this, this we think, is going to give much better access to surveillance to be able to track changes in the pathogen that way that they can overcome resistance in the host. In the wheat, Breeding, so the, the, the immunity, it all comes through breeding. So when, when you're breeding new, new lines of, of wheat, you go back and you source for you know, relatives of wheat or old lines that have 
resistance to a particular disease and you breed that into the new variety and that's what gives its protection. But it's kind of fixed in advance, so it's fixed during the breeding process, whereas the pathogen, the disease, can actually evolve in response to that. So one of the problems in crops and their diseases is that you breed for new resistances and then the disease overcomes that and they've got to go back and start the breeding process again and find new sources of resistance. And for the non-scientist, you're using something called gene screening platform. Mm-hmm. What, what is this and how does it work? Well, it's a way we can take a whole lot of genes from the fungal pathogen genome and screen them all at once for whether or not they're recognised by the plant immune system. So we can identify the things that are actually being recognised. So in a lot of ways, it's similar to what we find with COVID that's recognised by the our immune system, but the, the, you know, the pathogen changes and it can overcome immunity and we want to be able to track those changes in, in crop diseases as well. Would it have any application for other types of crops beyond wheat? Oh, yeah. So there are a lot of diseases that are you know, controlled by breeding for resistance. And basically when you breed for resistance, what you're doing is you're putting in new immune genes from the, from the plant which can give immunity to disease. But then, again, the pathogen can overcome those through evolution. So it's a way of finding those, those genes and um, being able to track the, the evolution of the virulence in the pathogen. And it applies to many different types of crops and pathogens. Through what process and what's the timeline for research like this to reach the paddock? Well, we think we, we're developing now some surveillance tools based on the genes that we've been identifying. So we think those surveillance tools will be available within a couple of years. And then they, they can be applied in the field to actually track new virulent lines of uh, plant diseases. So that, that's something that will be available within you know, two or three years. Uh, and that will just give much better surveillance opportunities. So we'll have a much better idea of what diseases are out there, and what's their capacity to infect different wheat varieties. And then that will give farmers a much faster heads up in terms of what, what's out there, what's threatening the crops, and how they should respond to that. Longer term application is that this will feed into the breeding process so we can actually have, make better choices and, and predict better which resistance genes are going to work better in the field and perhaps last longer. So it will flow through to breeding more resistant varieties as well. That is Dr Peter Dodds of the CSIRO and he's speaking there to Kate Higgins. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Wednesday has already rolled around. That means it's the day for the market reports. Elsie Adamo again has this week's Dublin results for you. Hi, Elsie. Good afternoon, Selena. Numbers remained similar as agents offered 7,500 lambs and 2,000 sheep. Merino lambs again made up a large portion of the yarding, with most in two-score condition. The few crossbred lambs were also extremely mixed in quality, with most lacking freshness and condition. Two processor buyers were absent, and competition from the remaining buyers was generally subdued. The extreme tops of the lambs struggled to remain firm, as the balance lost from $15 to $30 per head, with some highly erratic pricing. Mutton quality was again good, and prices remained firm to slightly dearer. Extremely light lambs sold from $20 to $92, as light lambs ranged from $50 to $128. Light trade types sold from $55 to $130. Medium weights ranged from $110 to $150, as heavyweights sold from $84 to $200. The few extreme heavyweights sold from $68 to a top of $195 per head, highlighting the wide variation in prices. Light use sold from $12 to $30, medium weights ranged from $30 to $75, with heavy weights selling from $63 to $85 per head. 
Some outstanding heavy weathers sold from $90 to $96 per head. Ram lambs sold from $29 to $52, with mature rams selling to $30 per head. Meanwhile, in the cattle market, numbers reduced as agents offered 300 live weight and open auction cattle. The usual trade and processor buyers, feeders and restockers provided generally good competition. Quality this week was extremely mixed, with more secondary yielding cattle coming forward. Prices reflected the quality on offer, with very few ideal trade cattle throughout the yarding. Vila steers sold to 270 cents, as Vila heifers range from 216 to 262 cents per kilogram. Yielding steers range from 150 to 320 cents, with yielding heifers selling from 108 to 272 cents per kilogram. Grown steers sold from 245 to 286 cents, with grown heifers ranging from 244 to 258 cents per kilogram. Light beef cows sold from 138 cents to 154 cents. Medium weights made 70 cents to 160 cents, with heavy cows selling from 180 to 244 cents per kilogram. Bulls sold from 100 to 160 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in for John Traeger for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks so much, Elsie. And Peter Kerr has the report from today's sale at the Mount Gambier market. Hello, Peter. Good afternoon, Selena. This is the Mount Gambier cattle report for the 28th of February. Numbers more than doubled at Mount Gambier today as they cut 1,102 head of live weight and open auction cattle. These sold to a larger field of trade and processor buyers along with feeder and restocker orders. Quality was very mixed from pen to pen as the sales sold a dearer race this week of mostly 12 to 20 cents a kilogram for the better types. Feelers were small in number as steers sold from 275 to 347 cents for the trade with similar heifers making from 205 to 312 cents a kilogram. Feeders operated on steers from 255 to 302 cents and on the heifers from 224 to 274. Yielding steers attracted trade support from 252 to 315 cents as heifers sold from 200 to 310. Feeder orders sought steers from 230 to 312 cents and heifers from 190 to 280 cents with restocker interest in steers to 285 and heifers 266 cents a kilogram. Growing steers and bullocks made from 250 to 322 cents with a lift of 15 cents to the trade as feeders were active from 265 to 305. Growing heifers sold to trade buyers from 238 to 290 cents as manufacturing steers range from 225 to 264 cents a kilogram. Heavy cows lifted up to 8 cents as they returned from 235 to 260 cents as lighter lots made from 160 to 229 with bulls selling from 180 to 233 cents a kilogram. This has been Peter Kerr for the MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Peter. That takes us to 23 minutes past 12. Said you with Selena Green on the Country Hour today and an interesting day weather-wise across the state. So let's head to the Bureau now where our forecaster is Jenny Horvat. Hello, Jenny. Good afternoon, Selena. Yeah, so some very interesting weather. What's the status at the moment? Yeah, that's right. So we've got our low-pressure system to the south of the state, so sort of south-southwest of Kangaroo Island at the moment, and that main southwesterly change moving across western parts at the moment. Ahead of that, we've seen a bit of mid-level cloud move through in the sort of the early hours of this morning and still moving across this morning. Embedded with that, we've seen a little bit of isolated shower and a little bit of thunderstorm activity as well. 
very active at the moment with the storms, mostly over the water, but not far from you, Selena, down there near Mount Gambia and to the to the south. So we've got those moving through. We're watching those for severity, whether we see some damaging wind gusts with that, but probably more likely as they move over the border through there. But some gusty storms not out of the, the question there this morning ahead of that main system. Still got that high-pressure system out in the Tasman, so that's helping maintain some northerly winds ahead of this change. Change is a little bit complex in that we've got sort of a bit of a double change moving through. So a bit more of a sort of a westerly pushing through ahead of that main southwesterly that's starting to move across later. So we've seen that sort of westerly change moving through sort of central parts this morning and starting to sort of move across into the eastern border there. So expecting to see that pushing along that southeast coast in the next sort of half an hour, hour, and then slowly making its way up into sort of the Riverland later this afternoon and evening. The thing is, it's not going to push its way all the way through to the state. Looks like it's going to stall across the north of the pastoral districts and um, stay put up there for the next few days. But as a consequence of um, the heat, the wind, we do have fire weather warnings current um, for extreme fire danger today for the Flinders, Mid North, Mount Lofty Ranges, Riverland, Murraylands, Upper Southeast, and Lower Southeast fire weather districts. And as a consequence, the CFS have imposed total fire bans in those regions, and that stays in effect up until midnight tonight. We also have a heat wave warning out for the heat, especially um, so broadly across the state we've been seeing, especially the northern parts, low intensity of heat wave, but we're now expecting to see some severe heat wave activity across the northeast pastoral district. So we do have a warning out for that as well. And marine warnings over quite a few areas as well. So if you're um, with that gusty change moving through. So if you are planning to head out on the waters, best to check for that as well. Uh, flood waters do continue to come down from the from Queensland and they're well into SA now. So we do still have that flood warning current for the inland rivers as well. So a few warnings out there for today and just having a look at some of that heat that we are experiencing so far today, looking at some of those maximum temperatures already pushing up to around 42 degrees at uh, Mari Airport, Unadatta just under 42 there, just over 40 degrees for Lee Creek and Renmark and Roxby Downs and Keith um, just under 40. So quite hot, especially across the north and east ahead of that change moving through, but some relief coming in sight. Like I said, we haven't seen a lot of rainfall. We're not expecting a lot of rainfall with this. Up until 9am with that middle level activity, we did manage to pick up just over a millimetre at Sedan, but otherwise falls were really just 0.2 or 0.4. And since 9am, not seen a lot either, only 0.2 in the gauge there at Robe Airfield. So essentially, um, it is a bit of a dry change as it makes its way across. Much cooler conditions across the south and the west um, tomorrow still maintaining that heat across the north of the pastoral districts well into the weekend with those temperatures in the 40s hanging around with that trough stalling up around the north there expecting again some thunderstorm activity across the northeast pastoral district 
possibly the Flinders and northern parts of the northwest pastoral district on the Thursday there. On Friday, possibly seeing that storm risk as that trough drifts maybe a little bit further south. So maybe the storm's pushing across the pastoral districts into the west coast district, northern parts of Eyre Peninsula, maybe even getting to northern parts of mid-north and the Riverland. So that's going to be a bit of a watch this space for, for Friday. Similar types areas with those storms again on Saturday. By Sunday, we'll start to see them pushing back north of Cooper PD by Monday, maybe getting confined to western parts, so west of Sejuna and more sort of along that WA border where they'll kind of linger um, early next week, um, maybe starting to get a little bit of a wriggle on if we get a bit another one of these changes starting to move through midweek. But we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one as we get closer to the time. So generally falls with the change, not looking at a lot, but with thunderstorms possibly seeing sort of 10 to t- 2 to 10 millimetres and some local isolated falls of 10 to 30 millimetres over the next few days in the north there. Yes, Selena. All right. Thanks for that, Jenny. Have a great day. Thank you. Jenny Horvat there from the Weather Bureau. Looking at the western inland of New South Wales for tomorrow, the upper and lower western districts are both expecting a mostly sunny day with a slight chance of a shower. For the lower western district, that's particularly in the far eastern part of the district near zero chance elsewhere. Both districts also come with a chance of a thunderstorm in the afternoon and evening tomorrow as well. Overnight temperatures in the lower western district down to between 19 and 26 degrees, closer to around 30 overnight for the upper western district and both during the day expecting to get up into the low 40s. It's half past 12. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. Afternoon. Now, where do you get your protein from in your diet? Well, pulses like lentils, chickpeas, these are all a really good source of protein. Well, the South Australian-based company is getting some funding from the state government to develop protein products from locally grown faba beans, and their plan is to eventually export it to the world. You're going to hear more about that in just a moment. And the bee-killing varroa mite unfortunately continues to turn up in new parts of Australia. How ready is South Australia? The general feeling is that varroa could come in at any time, but most people are saying it's in the two-, two- to four-year period time frame that we could expect it, but... You know, all you need is somebody to bring a box of uh, infected bees across the border and you've got it. And uh, we need to provide advice to get this plan in place as quickly as we possibly can. More on that to come with a recent detection now in Queensland. Some more details on that very shortly as well. This is all after news headlines from Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, the Country Fire Service says that wind changes forecast later today will be an aggravating factor in the event of a fire. A cool change is expected from the west this afternoon, but some regional centres will still hit maximum temperatures well into the 40s. Extreme fire danger warnings and fire bans are current for regions from the Flinders to the lower southeast. 
The Premier, Peter Malinowskis, says that a senior midwife has been recruited to re-establish birthing services in Wyala, which he says should never have been lost. The Premier was in Port Pirie yesterday for the third day of a major economic summit focusing on renewable hydrogen energy, green steel and copper production in the region, and a boy who caused the death of his teenage passenger when he crashed into the fence at the Edinburgh RAAF base in Adelaide's north has been sentenced to four years jail by a district court judge. The driver, who was 16 years old at the time and can't be named for legal reasons, was speeding to escape police when he crashed in September 2022 before fleeing the scene. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman with those headlines. Well, yes, pulses like lentils, chickpeas, fava beans, these are all a really great source of protein. And a South Australian-based company is making a big investment in making protein powders from these crops. Based in Dublin on the Adelaide Plains, Integra Foods has just been granted a half a million dollar investment from the South Australian government to develop its plant protein products and export them to the world. The company uses an environmentally friendly dry fractioning technique to separate the starches from the proteins in the fibre beans. I had a chance to speak with Integra Foods Managing Director Tim Martin about what they do and how these funds will be spent. We're fully owned by Australian Grain Exports and we've been into the pulse game, be it lentils, chickpeas, fibre beans, for quite a while, back into the 90s. And we've just noticed we get very reliant on the, the destination market for price discovery. Um, so we've always wanted to get into something more than uh, just packaging up the, uh, the raw product, sending it off at the whim of wherever the market might be. So slowly but surely, we've, um, we've built mainly our sites at Dublin and Wimmera uh, up to further capabilities in terms of exporting um, both bulk end containers and then into cleaning and splits. And now we've taken the extra step to go into creating protein powder for the industry, which can, can cover uh, human consumption, pet food and stock feed. Uh, and the byproduct of that is starch and fibre, which also has the uses in, in those markets. So that's the aim. Um, currently, Australia imports a lot of the needs for this, about 20,000 tonnes of soy and pea, which just seems ridiculous and we, we grow the pulses here ourselves. So that, that was the main thought process in going into it. And understand that the process that you use in creating these products or these pulses, dry fractionation, if I'm saying that yeah. correctly, that is a, yeah. a rather unique technique that you use? It, it's not unique in the sense um, it's been used around the world, but it is becoming more prevalent because the, other, the opposite one of doing that or the other way of doing that is wet fractioning, which, of course, doesn't bode well in, in the, the dry state and the dry of the country in the world. So dry fractioning is, is really just a big centrifuge which actually separates the heavier particles from the lighter particles, which is the protein from the starch and fibre. So in terms of a process, it's very pure. In terms of the product that we end up with, we're not meddling with the compounds of it like other extraction processes do. Now, you've received a $500,000 funding investment from the state government. Tell us a little bit about what you'll be using that for, and I understand that is really about what developing uh, what you do, but also looking to export it further? Yes, it's, it's 500000 uh, from the state government for research and development. So what we've found coming into this, uh, we're doing everything that we can do, um, and predominantly we are traders and we are marketers, um, but this is a, a food product and there's a lot of development that needs to get in place before we can take it to market. So 
We need a lot. We need to collaborate with a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of um, food manufacturers, pet food, dog feed. But if we're going to get into the retail sector, we really have to get in from the ground up. I.e., we, we need to develop products that uh, our fiber bean pr- protein in particular serves, and we need to get into that from the ground up. I.e., show the food manufacturers what our product can do, and then go and con- in collaboration with them to develop something. What we have found. Uh, having been in this space for a while. We're about to commission in a couple of months, so we haven't actually got our product off um, where we can show them exactly what the characteristics of our products are. But what we have found is uh, food manufacturers, even though they like the Australian-made, the fact that it's a a more pure process, they're not going to repeal or or claw back what already is a successful um, product on the the shelves. We have to get in from the ground up. So so this grant will will help us develop those products, and, and yes, we're going to target export markets as well. Uh, be it probably into pet food, aqua uh, and uh, human consumption. What sort of export markets do you see where where there is a market for this sort of product at the moment? Well, it's it's everywhere. Um, It's not a new thing. It seems new to Australia, but but pea protein in particular is uh, is right around the world and it's used in in various processes. It's, It's probably in a lot of foods that you eat that you don't even know whether it's, um, you know, dips. Pet food is a big one that is used for it. Obviously, everyone uh, knows of the alternate uh, protein markets that, that are used. But in terms of um, countries, it's, it's very big in Europe. Uh, Europe will be a, a market we target, um, as will Asia. And uh, taking it to the US is the next step. And our differentiating factor is that it's favour bean protein rather than pea. So that has its advantages and disadvantages Advantages are, are the ones I touched on, that it's, a, it's a, in our view, a, a better product, but um, the market is, is very much used to pea protein. So we have to establish ourselves and, and show that our products can compete and, and in some cases outdo its competitors. So an investment like this here in a company in South Australia, is this good news for South Australian growers? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole reason we've done it. The investment, you know, 500000 we're very grateful for it. But we have also you know, about a $20 million spend for, for us. So we are investing heavily into to this process and, and, and being in the position to be able to, to value it, if you like. Um, that's sort of how we've looked at it from the start. We, we liken it to iron ore where we just, Australia just ships off the iron ore as a raw product rather than doing anything with it here on shore. And we're trying to do it a bit here. So, yeah, it does because, you know, favour beans, for instance, you know, we, we grow about half a million tonnes of it. It predominantly more than half of that goes to Egypt. And when Egypt are buying, um, that's all well and good, but we are at the whim of, of their pricing and, and we have competition from uh, Eastern European countries which, which can get quite cheap. So sometimes uh, that market isn't uh, as uh, fruitful as people want. This, I suppose, is a bit of a, a backstop and allows us to have a, a price in the market regardless of what the, the international uh, raw favour bean market is doing. That is the Managing Director of Integra Foods, Tim Martin. It is 21 minutes to one. Well, an update now for you on the spread of the bee-killing varroa mite across the country. The southeast Queensland bee industry is on lockdown as investigations continue into the extent of the varroa jacobsoni mite infestation at the port of Brisbane. The insect is a different species to the varroa destructor. That's the one that's caused mass devastation in New South Wales and Victoria. But Australian Honeybee Industry Council CEO Danny Leferve says the detection is still significant to the industry. 
It's just another blow for our industry at the moment, another detection of a pest that we don't want. So we know uh, last week that there was a detection of a single mite in a sentinel hive at the Port of Brisbane amongst six other sentinel hives. There's been a lot of uh, surveillance around that area and thankfully they haven't been able to detect any other mites, which is a good sign to suggest that it might be isolated. When it comes to management, you know, in terms of the Varroa Destructor, there's the national management plan in place now. Is the, the Jacob Sono being treated in the same way or it'll be looked to be eradicated from that Brisbane port area? Uh, so it will fall under the same process as Varroa Destructor in that it falls under the Emergency Plant Pest Response Deed and there's a described process with a new detection on what happens. So currently it's in what they call the incident definition phase where they're trying to establish the actual size of the response that's needed uh, and if it's beyond the capability of Queensland Department to uh, run that or fund that response, then they'll come to the CCPP with a response plan to look to cost share that the same as they did for Varroa Destructor. How significant would you say this detection is? Uh, so this is not as significant as Varroa Destructor in, in New South Wales. Hopefully it, it is caught early enough. It appears that way at this stage with the single mite being detected. We also know that Varroa jacobsoni, which is the species detected in Brisbane, is normally only found on Asian honeybees. But it has recently been established that it's jumped host in Papua New Guinea and Fiji to European honeybees. And the single mite was found in a European honeybee colony. So that, that is alarming. But to date, there hasn't been a huge impact from Varroa jacobsoni globally uh, on European honeybees. That's the CEO of Australia's Honeybee Industry Council, Danny Laferve, and he was speaking there to Megan Hughes. Well, South Australia's apiary and pollination industries are pushing ahead with preparations for the arrival of Varroa mite. It comes as a species of the pest, as we just heard, has been detected at the Port of Brisbane in Queensland. The parasite, which weakens and kills honeybees, was detected at Newcastle Port back in 2022. But it spread through New South Wales, has prompted the National Management Group to switch its response from emergency to management last year. The pest has not yet been detected in South Australia. We certainly hope it uh, stays that way for a very long time. But Don Plowman is the independent chair for the State Varroa Industry Advisory Committee. He told Eliza Berlage while they're still waiting for a national plan, the committee is monthly meeting monthly to prepare. The key purpose of the committee is to provide advice to PERSA or to the Minister, but basically that means to PERSA, on a transition to management plan for Varroa in South Australia. It is a, a new pest in, in Australia, although it has been here before, but it's been uh, been eradicated. It came in in June uh, 2022. It was decided a little bit later, a year or two, a year later, that it was not eradicable and that therefore the process was to go from an eradication program to a transition to management program. So that's that's basically what the committee is, is there to do. How were you chosen to be the independent chair? Did you put your hand up or did someone uh, suggest you for the role? Um, look, I was approached by uh, by the department. I think um, I have quite a, a wide experience in emergency management. In fact, in 2017, I was the recovery coordinator for the storm up in the Riverland. So I had a 12-month looking at the, rec- you know, the recovery program there. But I've had a lot of experience and background in emergency management. Who else is on the committee with you, Don? 
Look, there's a range, basically, in terms of the types of people there. They reflect those areas that are most uh, impacted by uh, by the presence of varroa. And can I say there is no varroa detected in South Australia as yet. And clearly the aim is to try and keep it out as long as possible. So we have members of the two uh, industry associations, the beekeeper industry associations. We have two representatives of the pollination dependent industries. These are an interesting uh, group of people. They include uh, the, the most um, front of mind runs for the Riverland would be almonds, but there's also quite a lot of other uh, fruit crops that are pollinated by bees. Some uh, that come with hives that are brought in to do the pollination, some that are done with the feral bees that are natural in the, in the environment there. So we have access to a range of other people like uh, environmental interests. We have uh, the opportunity to bring in people that have a background in the science or research of, uh, of bees or po- the pollination side of it. So it's quite a balanced group and uh, as you'd expect to be providing advice on what is a really quite a, a unpleasant place. So how often uh, will they have to meet and you know I guess what's expected? Well we were, we were set up in, uh, we had our first meeting in November. We've now had three meetings and uh, we're meeting about monthly. What we've done so far in the absence of a national plan. So at present, there is a national plan that is nearing completion and that plan will inform the South Australian plan, which is what we're providing advice to PERS around. So we've met quite quite often. Um, we have provided advice on a response plan and that is a plan that would be useful if uh, VRA comes in before we get the transition to management plan in place uh, with PERS. I think we'll be meeting about once a month until we uh, we get the um, the key elements of a transition to management plan in place in South Australia, and that's communicated and understood by both the beekeeping sector and the pollination dependent industries. Yeah, you might have already answered this, but I, I was yeah going to ask about how the South Australian Advisory Committee is working and will work with the National Management Group. Look, uh, we we're really keen. We don't think there's any point at all in, in developing a state plan that's not aligned as closely as possible to the national plan. There will be some specific um, uh, issues to South Australia that uh, will be needed, but, but basically you know, there's, there's quite a bit of money that's been put together by government and industry on this national plan, and we need to make sure that, that we work as best as possible with that. But look, we also have, uh, there's, a, there's quite a wide range of reports that have been developed that uh, we have access to. We have people on the committee that have experience in the management of of Varroa overseas. So that expertise has all been taken. And if the group feels that it does not have the right expertise to provide advice on an issue, we can bring in that advice from other sources. What are some of the issues that are specific to South Australia that the committee's been discussing? Oh, look, I think the uh, the main issues will be the nature of the uh, of the environment that we work in. So we are a major almond producer. Uh, so you would expect South Australia to be taking a lead in terms of uh, how that uh, unfolds. Broadacre crops are really, um, you know, our rainfall, our temperatures, etc., are quite different to what they are in the eastern states and overseas. So I don't think we're going to be doing things that are radically different. But we, we just need to be mindful that there are different uh, environmental conditions and different structures and arrangements in place in South Australia than there are, there are in other states. Kangaroo Island is a region with some very unique bees and we share a border with Western Australia that have some very strong bee uh, biosecurity laws. What sort of things are you having to consider with that or is that a big factor in discussions too? 
Look, we will be providing advice on all of those. You know, the Ligurian bee on uh, on the island is a bit of an icon for South Australia, and we're keen to make sure that there are borders that prevent the importation of honey and bees and things like that onto the island. I don't think that's going to be a very difficult one to uh, handle. And I think the border, well, all of the borders are, are, have got different kind of issues around them. And as we move into this transition to management plan for South Australia, then we'll be taking advice from a number of committees on um, you know, risk assessments and border movements to provide advice to PERSA. And is there a, a timeline on, on when South Australia possibly expects Varroa mite to cross the border into the state? Because I think if we had the answer to that, uh, we, we'd be uh, laughing, wouldn't we? Sorry, I don't say that in the in a, No, in a, in a nice as way. people have said, they're sort um, of worried this national transition plan won't be ready in time. I, I think the plan, the national plan will be. The reason I said that, uh, you know, if we knew that, we'd be, we'd be, uh, we'd be right, because the general feeling is that rail could come in, yes, it, it could definitely come in any time, but there, most people are saying it's in the two, two to four year period time frame that we could expect it, but... You know, all you need is somebody to bring a box of uh, infected bees across the border and you've got it and uh, we need to be planning. I think the, the committee is well over the issue that we need to get this plan. We need to provide advice to get this plan in place as quickly as we possibly can. That is the South Australian Varroa Industry Advisory Committee Chair John Ploman and he was speaking to Eliza Berlage. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Selena Green bringing you the country out on this Wednesday, the 28th of February. Well, the ABC understands that China is on track to lift tariffs of up to 200% on Australian wine at the end of March. This is after Trade Minister Don Farrell met with his Chinese counterpart, Wang Wenteo. Trade Minister Don Farrell and his Chinese counterpart held a meeting on the sidelines of the World Trade Organisation Conference in Abu Dhabi on Monday night, where they discussed the tariffs, amongst other issues. China was the biggest buyer of Australian wine until 2020, when the country slapped heavy tariffs and trade restrictions on several Australian industries as part of a diplomatic dispute over an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. This effectively halted the export of those products, including Australian wine, to China. Well, Murray Valley Wine Growers CEO, Paul Derrico, said it was too early for growers to get their hopes up. Well, uh, personally, I take the view that we can't take for granted that will happen. Industry communications are that, yes, it's uh, scheduled to be decided by the 31st of March, but we certainly take nothing for granted that will happen. We're really hopeful that the tariffs would be dropped, but then oh, in, that they would be dropped in full. I suppose the other issue is, yeah, it could be in part or in full, and if they were to be dropped, when would that be effective? So it would be really good news for industry, but we're just holding on tight for the decision to be made in due course. I can hear some hesitancy in your voice. It sounds like you're really tamping down expectations here. Why is that? Oh, really, at the end of the day, yeah, we just can't take for granted these things will happen. You know, over the years, we've uh, probably got our hopes up in certain areas and then growers uh, out there who are doing it really tough at the moment in some circumstances, selling grapes, uh, red grapes very cheaply or not selling them at all. And really, when we deliver good news. We want to make sure that it's correct rather than get hopes up and then have that fall flat when our our best hopes um, don't arise. Speaking hypothetically, if the tariffs were to be lifted, how long would it take for that to have an effect on wine growers? Oh, really, there's 
That's a hard question to answer in the sense that um, currently within Australia we have in excess of 12 months stock over what we would normally sell in a given year. So there's a lot of wine to be sold over what would need to be a short period of time. Look, there would be improvement for growers, you would have thought, in the next year or two, but what that would um, mean in terms of price back to growers or the volume of fruit sold is really difficult to answer. But it would be a shot in the arm for the industry. And, um, yeah, it's just difficult to say what immediate effect that would have for growers, but it certainly give growers some expectation that things were on the improve. We mm. must we must bear in mind also that China's not the market that it used to be. As of 2018, uh, global imports into China have reduced by 50%. So if we were able to gain or regain our share of what we were selling uh, when the tariffs were applied, we'd, we'd still sell a reasonable volume in there, but nowhere near, obviously, what we were doing beforehand. Can you give us a bit of a reminder, how big was China as a market for Australian wine producers before these tariffs came in? Well, in value, it was our number one market. It was $1.2 billion and total exports were $3 billion. So it was 40% of the Australian market. The volume was around about 11 or 12%, I think it was. So it was a high value market. And that filtered down through all of the, the wine channels and you know, growers were able to receive good pricing back when exports were at their peak. And so you say global markets into China have reduced by 50% since 2018. What's behind that big drop? Is China producing its own wine now? What's filling that gap? To a certain extent, China is you know, producing a bit more wine, but as much as anything, uh, a lot of it's COVID-related and people weren't out entertaining downturn in their in their markets and their or probably their cost of living, as you know, most of the the world has encountered. So just consumer spending has been bit, they've been down a fair bit as well. So all of those things added together. But certainly I don't think the China production of, of wine has increased significantly you know, during that period. It's just you know, generally the consumption in China has reduced. Now, we know that a lot of wine grape producers in Australia are having a difficult time at the moment because prices are quite low. How badly do some growers need a sense of hope and, and optimism at this point? Well, they desperately need a, a sense of hope and, and I've been involved in horticulture uh, most of my working life and I say that's one thing that growers survive on is hope. But I would say right now, hope is at its lowest level in, as I my four decades in horticultural industry. So this shot in the arm, if it arises, would give growers that expectation that there is some hope for, if it's not next year, the year after, that you know, things will turn around. That was the Murray Valley Wine Growers CEO, Paul Derrico, and he was speaking to Elsie Kennedy there. Six minutes to one. Uh, Steve called in to say maybe the wine industry has a good Chianti or wine that will go with the fava beans. <laughs> I wonder where you got that idea from, Steve. Uh, he also uh, wonders whether they could put tracking chips that they use for livestock onto beehives in Australia. So if anyone tried to move them across borders, you are notified. Uh, finally today... We have been hearing a lot this week about the lethal abalone virus, viral ganglioneuritis, or AVG. It's been found in South Australian waters in the southeast for the first time. So how are abalone fishers in South Australia's other zones reacting to this discovery? Well, Abalone Council of Australia Chair and Air Peninsula abalone diver Jonas Woolford says it will be a nervous wait to see if the restrictions will stop the spread. It's 
was on the cards that uh, the AVG virus could make its way into South Australian waters. I knew that it had been detected near Portland just recently, and really it has been prevalent in Western Zone Victoria, which is right next door to the Southern Zone South Australia since around 2007. So coming across the border like it has, while not welcome at all, it was always a possibility. Is it something that could have been avoided or was it inevitable? That's hard to say. I must say uh, Victorian fishers uh, and the Fisheries Authority have done an exceptional job at limiting the spread of the virus. And that is the one thing that South Australia can really learn from is that this virus can be slowed down and we know it can be spread by fishing activity uh, and the gear that's used. So any any effort to reduce that spread and, and like putting the closure in like it has is a, is a step forward in stopping it in its tracks. So this has just been detected in a part of the southern zone. For those that might not know, Abalone has in South Australia, there's a southern, central and uh, western zone. How does the southern zone compare to the other zones in South Australia? Is it one of the smaller producing regions? The southern zone has six licence holders and they produce uh, around 24, 26 tonne whole weight and have been consistently producing that year after year for decades now. It, it's probably one of the most stable fisheries, abalone fisheries in Australia. And there's the central zone, which has also six licence holders. Their, their quotas have fluctuated according to how the season and the stocks are. And the western zone, which I fish in, uh, which is the Air Peninsula, we have 22 licence holders. So a, a larger fishery, but our quotas are slightly less individually than what the southern zone is around what the central zone is. So South Australia actually produces around equal with Victoria, but Tasmania is the largest abalone producing state. So how much is this a concern for you as a western zone abalone fisher? It is a a major concern as it is for every other abalone fisher uh, and licence holder along the southern coastline. I mean AVG is like, say, the varroa mite for the bee industry or foot and mouth for the livestock industry or fruit, fruit fly for the fruit industry. It can be absolutely devastating. So fortunately, we have very good biosecurity in a number of our states, including South Australia, and we really must um, abide by what those directions are. Yes, I was about to ask, so you think that the restrictions that have been put in place are going to be effective? I sure hope so. I sure hope so. It comes down to, that's it, each individual, be them commercial fishers and recreational fishers. I mean, this this is likely to be devastating for the six licence holders and those associated with the industry in the southern zone. We saw in western zone Victoria that basically people lost livelihoods overnight. There was just a closure to fishing for years. So I I would ask that the recreational fishers, yeah, have a think about that and please help because if they have an opportunity to to slow the spread of this, then I'd ask that they do so because if there is complacency and it spreads further, then it could get to the other zones quite easily. 
That's the Abalone Council of Australia Chair Jonas Woolford speaking to Elsie Adamo, and he also is an uh, abalone diver based on the Eyre Peninsula. That's almost it for me for today. Thanks so much for your company. Deb Tribe will be bringing you afternoons today. Uh, she'll be looking at the cool change, hopefully on its way. Uh, also, for the regular movie segment today, looking at sex scenes in films, so the kind of scenes in movies that you don't want to watch with your parents, uh, and asking if women actually propose on the 29th of Feb. Uh, if you've got plans, maybe she'd be keen to hear from you if it's not a spoiler. Uh, it is time now, though, for the 1 o'clock news. I'll catch you again tomorrow. The ABC Listen app means you can take ABC Radio with you to the garden or around the country. Take a bit of home with you wherever you go. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.